it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 151. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to continue our discussion on the economy. This is going to be the Economy 101 Part 3. And tonight, we're going to do kind of a wide-range discussion of a variety of different topics. Uh, the first one we're going to start off talking about is a little bit about government debt and treasury bonds and bills and T-bonds and, and kind of how all that stuff works. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and then I'll turn it over to Andrew. So let's talk about government debt. So government debt is basically when I'm referring to government debt, I'm talking about two different aspects of it. So the first part I'm talking about is there's the Federal Reserve balance sheet, which we've discussed in length in the past. And that is more about the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States taking on debt to try to infuse money into the system to try to create more liquidity, which hopefully will stimulate the economy. With what's going on with the pandemic and the lockdowns and most of the economy being shut down, uh, 30 million people, I believe, are out of work right now, uh, which is a staggering number. Uh, the Fed has been trying to pump more liquidity into the system by creating money for the reserves as well as buying uh, T-bonds and T-bills back from banks to put on their balance sheets that give the banks, I'm talking commercial banks like J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, U.S. Bank, and on and on, more liquidity to lend to us to be able to buy things as well as businesses. So the other aspect of the debt is the treasury. Now, the treasury is, those are the people that sell us the T-bills and the bonds and the notes and so on. And they just recently announced that they're going to be having a large offering here in the upcoming week or so, I believe. Uh, I don't remember the exact amount off the top of my head, but it was quite extensive, three or four trillion dollars, somewhere in that range. And what that does is that helps give them ammo to sell to the banks to create more liquidity. And so that is, of course, a 
huge part of the government debt. Now, one of the strengths of the U.S. dollar right now is the attractiveness of those bills. And now, most of that money, not most, a lot of it is sold overseas. So, for example, countries like Japan, Russia, China, uh, Great Britain, France, Italy, whoever, a lot of those people will buy our bonds because they're very high rated. There, that that debt is assured to be paid, and that helps them uh, earn interest. Now, granted, the interest on the bonds right now is pretty putrid, but it's still better than nothing. And compared to other currencies, which we'll talk about in a little bit, it also helps them make money as well. So, there's a lot of advantages to those kinds of monies for other countries, and that helps us fund the things that we need to do right now. For example, we need to help people stay afloat. People need jobs. People can't get jobs because their businesses they're working in that restaurant that they worked at for the last 15 years, unfortunately, is shuttered right now. And so they don't have a way of making any money. So the Fed and the Treasury are working together to try to help the little person. And that's what a lot of this does. And so when you hear some of those big, scary numbers that are bandied around in the news, that's really what they're talking about. Uh, so that's so kind question of my for you. Um, yeah. I'm not, I, I think I have a sense of, of if this is correct or not, but an example of the difference between money from the Fed and then money from the Treasury is like the stimulus that's kind of paid for from the treasury um, where, where they're giving checks to everybody. Um, yes. Or like the, like the payroll support. Well, no, uh, like the, for example, so I own, I owned Southwest um, had to sell it because they announced that they're not paying a dividend until September, 2021. And so I don't own businesses where they're, I'm not getting a dividend yield um, for the year. So I sold them. They, they signed up for one of the relief programs. And so, you know, there were strings attached. They had some money that they were going to put that would cover paychecks, payroll. And then as, as a consequence of that, they couldn't buy back shares. They couldn't pay a dividend, um, things of that nature. So I believe the Fed, it, it gets confusing because the Fed has been given or the Fed has initiated some programs like uh, small business loans where, where some of the money is coming from the Fed to support small business uh, so they can have liquidity. Uh, where at the same time, the Treasury's been dealing with maybe a mix of both too, but I think primarily they're doing more... Do you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, well, they're, they're doing more of the, the, the direct stimulus to the people. So that's why you see uh, the Department of the Treasury on the news all the time talking about that, because that's where the money is coming from. It's coming from the Treasury. It's not necessarily it, – it is coming from the Fed in in regards that the SBA loans, the the – the small business loans go through the banks. So the applications have to go through the banks and the funding will come from the banks, but the fed will get the funding from the sale of the, 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 uh, the bonds. And that's how they raise the money to have to give to JP Morgan to lend out to the people that need it. And so that's kind of how that 
flow is, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah. So depending on the program, right? So, so like, I think um, the majority of, well, for example, the, the $1,200 payments that were coming, that didn't go through the banks that went, that came directly from the treasury. Right. And so, so when you hear something like that coming from the treasury, that's directly correlated to U.S. government debt, whereas something like Fed's Fed um, providing liquidity to different banks, that's not that's not going directly to government debt, but people are worried because it's more of an inflationary force on the currency. Yes. So I think it's a. I, I think uh, just thinking that through it's important when you read headlines to make that differentiation and that, and then hopefully the rest of the episode helps understand what part of the of the government debt is is an issue i would think so yeah so i guess the the next thing to think about government debt it's not necessarily something like I, I hear the narrative that oh this is government debt we're gonna have to pay it back eventually or we have to pay it back to China. Those aren't really that's not really how government debt works. And I think maybe understanding how the bond market with with government debt works can help shed light on that. So I think when it comes to specifically the government debt itself, obviously we're still talking about the United States here. Um, a common misconception or maybe ignorance about how it works. It's not the same as personal debt. We aren't talking about credit card bill statements that come due and just pile on and on and on. Um, The way that government debt works and functions is very different from how it works in the personal finance sense. And I think that can get confusing sometimes. Uh, What we need to realize as investors so that we can have context on government debt numbers as they get they get very scary right you see tens of trillions of dollars in government debt piling up and we think oh you know we're such in debt into into other countries and, and you know we're just giving away our country without really understanding what's going on um so what we need to understand when it comes to the basics of how the government is funded and and how these things kind of operate the government brings in tax money and then we set a budget and we spend that money. And so when we don't have enough to when we don't have enough money to cover those obligations that we're spending, then that's when we raise the the government debt part. And so I think the biggest issues that you can see, obviously it's not it's not a perfect thing and and in an ideal world it would be something we would want to avoid. Um, but the biggest thing to to avoid if if you're a country who's who's getting into a lot of debt is you want to make sure that the interest payments and essentially the the principal payments that you are paying back that you're still able to pay that comfortably year after year after year and where you can get into trouble is where when other countries around you see your currents if they perceive that you're not strong enough to make these government debt payoffs, then they could flee your currency. And then that's when you see everything really implode within itself. And that's where you get the grim 
gloom and doom projections and and all the the horror stories and and economic financial collapses that's really where that comes from and so how government debt works just a very very basic overview very similar to the way a corporate bond would work and and dave you're more of an expert on this than me so please jump in if i get any part of this wrong so when you're a company or a corporation and you want to raise let's say 500 million dollars you could um let's say you piece that out into five different bonds 100 million dollars each and let's say you're going to pay a 4% coupon on that debt and so you'll have other investors come in and they'll say hey let me take one of your bonds i'll pay 100 million and you pay me 4% interest it's a 10 year bond so you're going to pay me 4% over the life of the bond by the end of it, I will get my principal back, plus I'll get all the interest payments back on it. Did I mess any of that up so far? Perfect. Okay. So with the government, it's very similar, if not the same. They will sell, they have all sorts of different maturities and, and they call it different things. So that can be kind of confusing. But you know, you have T T bills, T bonds, uh, T notes, and they all have their different maturities, and it's the same concept. The Treasury will offer these, other investors will come in and buy them, and then the Treasury will have to make these payments, which are whatever the interest rate is, 1%, 2%, 3%. They're gonna pay that out of their out of what the rest of that picture was. So, you know, we have the the income coming in uh through taxes, you have stuff going out, social security, Medicare, uh, military, everything that they're spending on, plus they have to pay the interest payments and the principal payments on the debt that they've issued. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. 
Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. They screen any of that up yet. Perfect. Okay, cool. So now, I guess what makes it interesting and confusing and interconnected all at the same time, going back to the theme from uh, the last several episodes, is the problems can come when, again, if if people feel... If, if So the appeal of a government bond over, let's say, a corporate bond is in the in theory a government bond is way more secure or risk free so you know where a company can go bankrupt and we're seeing it happen all the time now it's it's very it's very hard for a country to go bankrupt they do go bankrupt but particularly the stronger the economy or the currency of that country is then the less likely it is to go bankrupt so when we talk about U.S. government bonds right now, they are seen as sort of the safe haven because uh, they're backed by the full faith and credit of the United States of America. And because the United States is the world reserve currency, which means it is the most transacted currency around the globe, you know, you could have um, India and Bangladesh, let's say as two random examples, could be trading with each other. and they would probably be trading in dollars because it is the world reserve currency. Um, and so that factor brings a sense of stability and um, less chance of people flocking away from that currency. And so that keeps the demand for these bonds strong. And so the government is able to take on a lot more debt the stronger their currency is. Uh, or it really the stronger the currency is perceived to be. And so when you have a situation like the United States, where again, they're the world reserve currency, a lot of currency is circulates in, in US dollars. And it is very stable because of this, because of this fact. And that's really what investors who are searching for risk-free investments are looking for. They're looking for stability particularly in the currency. And so that's one of obviously many factors that makes a U.S. government bond so appealing. So the risks for the United States in particular are if nobody's buying those bonds, then you're going to have a problem because now you're not able to raise the debt that you want. And so what happens in a situation like that when you don't have investors who are going to buy up your debt, if you need to attract investors, then you raise the interest rate on that debt. And so, you know, maybe I look at a bond and at 1%, I I don't think the the country is that safe. I'm not willing to take risk, the risk on that for a 1% return. Uh, But let's say they bump it up to 3%. Well, maybe I have 
a slightly higher risk appetite. And so I'm more willing to buy that bond now. And so where that can, where that can be a problem is, I guess, when you see all of these things combining together into, if you don't have basically because the U.S. government bonds set a lot of the interest rates around the world in a way, when those when those interest rates go up, you get a slowing of the economy. Uh, we kind of went through that when we talked about inflation and deflation, but when you talk about the deflationary spiral we were talking about where credit contracts, there's less money flowing through the system. Um, when you raise interest rates, that has the same effect because the harder it is to borrow, the more expensive it is to borrow, the less money circulates, the less inflationary forces you have, the more deflationary forces you have. And so in a situation like that, if there's perceived weakness in the currency, then that's where you can see people flock to sometimes more hard assets. So things like gold, things like certain commodities. Uh, I can't remember what the other example was. Ray Dalio gave it. Um, in a certain country, a certain time that it was literally rocks. People were buying rocks to keep the value of currency because their currency was just being completely devalued. So that, that I think becomes a much bigger risk when you, when you talk about government debt, it's not so much that, that the government needs to pay it off. Like it's, it's, it's never going to be paid off. I, I, I don't see something like that happening. It's just not feasible. And it's funny to me when, when people critique the government for kicking the can down the road and then they kick the can down the road with bigger and better house with a new 30 year or newer, faster car after just paying off their last car. You know, we all, a lot of people tend to kind of kick the can down the road in that way. And so if, if you're like a government like the United States, and if you don't have any debt, you don't have any bonds out, any treasury bonds out, it's just, it would be an interesting situation. I, I don't think it's something that's, really realistic at at this time uh, in the current situation we're in. Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Well, it definitely, it definitely is. It definitely is not. I don't think when Alexander Hamilton set up the monetary system that we have, I don't think it was designed to not have, not, not have debt. It goes to your point last week, where we I think we think of debt bad is as bad, and it is very bad um, from a personal finance standpoint. But like you said last week, debt is credit, and so one man's asset is another man's liability, and so mm-hmm. it's that debt itself is is what money is, and so if you take that away, you, you have very little money in the system. There's no incentive. Yeah, I, it, it could be in a way like taking, like imagine taking away equity in companies, right? Who's going to risk right. capital? Yeah, there's no incentive. Who's who's going to risk capital no if they don't get return? Right, and that's and that's what's going to drive people to invest would be the 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 return, and people are willing to put something at risk to get that return whatever it may be whether it's 
monetary, whether it's, you know, their home, whether it's something personal, it, it just, it kind of depends. And if you look through the, back through the history of money, there's always been somebody that's owed somebody something. And that's kind of how money works. You're basically, we replaced bartering with a process of we owe, we own something that we think has a value and we give that to somebody and now they own it, but now I want it back, you know, at some point in some way, shape or form, whether that's working for it or whether that's borrowing it. Yeah. And so the, the, like you said, being able to progress from bartering and having a monetary system where you can borrow and make essentially big investments, because if there was no borrowing, how could you build uh, like a, a, a big building, right? Or there, there's right. just, there's so many things that are, that are started from one person kind of leveraging maybe a group of people's capital. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think kind of really boiling down to those basics and you start to think that thinking of debt in the wrong way can, can lead to a lot of negativity about um, how the current environment is. And that's really not necessary, but I think we, we do need to cover the risks of what too much debt could look like. So I kind of touched on how uh, having, having, investors who don't want to buy your debt anymore, that can be a really big problem. And so again, where they see that is in places of political instability, places where your currency is not worth much anymore. And so that's where you can get into hyperinflationary type of situations. And so I don't want to kind of pretend like I have the all-encompassing guide to, to everything that affects currency levels, but I think it's something... Um, at least to have a, a general grasp about. So we're, we're going back to the interconnected nature of the economy. Um, understand that countries trade with each other, and that's very beneficial for, for both parties. It's usually mutually beneficial. And so if I'm a country where I'm sitting on a jackpot of oil underneath my ground, um, but maybe let's say I don't have a lot of land mass, so I can't make a lot of farms to, to produce enough food for all the people that live in my country. Well, it makes sense for me to drill up the oil in my country, trade with the country next to me who has enough farmland and, and, you know, nice big fat cattle and the grains and everything. And you make this trade and it's mutually beneficial. And so a lot of that happens obviously on a huge scale in the world and it's contributed to a lot of the prosperity that we have um, today. And so what what needs to be understood is when you hear things like trade deficit or trade surplus, it's not always a, a black and white thing either where a trade deficit isn't necessarily always bad um, depending on, on where currencies are moving. The I think the the big obvious example is the U.S. and China. And so being able to have a trade deficit with China has allowed a lot of cheap Chinese goods to come to the U.S. that we've been able to consume or 
uh, use as assets to build other businesses. And so that's been a very beneficial process for us. I think though, when we talk about imports and exports, it's important to understand that relationship to currency. And so basically, if you're a major exporter or you're a major importer, that's going to have effect an effect on how valuable your currency becomes. And so the best way I can describe it uh, in a simple fashion, let's say we're China in that situation. And so we're exporting a ton of stuff, right? Um, computers, t-shirts, um, printers, whatever it is. And so all of that money that's coming to us, all these US dollars, uh, as the Chinese government, you're able to tax that and, and bring those revenues into the country. And then that can go through and, and kind of the wealth can distribute from there as it circulates around in the economy. Um, so what that's going to do is it's going to strengthen the currency because in, in, in a sort of equilibrium world where let's say the government's not running a deficit, let's say they're spending as much as they're bringing in in income. So if they're doing that, or, or let's say, let's say they're trading and so they're getting a surplus of income and then they're spending the same in their government. And so what that's going to do, if they were to do that, to keep that steady, it would be essentially the same thing as somebody saving their money. And so in a situation like that, their currency would be rising in value because they're accumulating um, all of these US dollars, uh, essentially. And so in a, in a way, if, if that were to continue just in equilibrium, and then at the same time, you have the United States. And so the big fear here in the United States is that we're kind of losing all of our money to China in a trade like that. And so if you have a similar kind of situation, but now let's look at the United States where we're, we're importing more than we're exporting. So more of our dollars are going and, and being taxed by the Chinese, right? We're not bringing as much money in through imports, so that's not as much taxation. And so again, assuming similar expenditures and similar um, income in taxes, uh, the U.S. would start to see their currency depreciate because um, basically at, at a certain point, if they start to run like a negative deficit, you're going to have to borrow in order to to bring that up to to bring that deficit and, and make up the difference of that deficit. So the more you borrow, the more you borrow, the more you borrow, the less valuable your currency becomes. And so that's what could happen in... And that, that's like the general kind of logic behind how imports and exports can affect a currency. I think the part that gets confusing is that and maybe it makes the, the whole China-America thing not a good example, is that China has been at the same time depreciating their currency on purpose. And so if you actually look at a graph between the relationship between the US dollar and the Chinese yuan, um, over the past several years, the dollar has actually been getting stronger than it, even though we've been exporting, I'm sorry, even though the US has been importing a lot of goods from China and China's had a huge uh, trade surplus. Um, and so a way that the a government can do that 
is if now if the Chinese government is also um, taking on a lot of debt as well, then whatever currency appreciation they're getting from the trade imbalance, if they're balancing that out by taking out more debt, then the currency will deflate the more debt they add to their system. Because if we talk about what the episode was last week, as you add more money or less money to the system, um, that can that can cause inflation or deflation of goods and services and also currencies along with that. And so that's where, again, the interconnected theme comes into play and it's not always black and white. And so that's why when I, knowing those facts helps me to not have fear with with what I see on headlines, because if it's really bothering you that you see that we ran a $400 billion trade deficit, let's say, as an example. Well, now, if you have a general understanding of of, of kind of that economic system in place and, and how some of those things can, can move other things, then you can go in and, and with an investigative kind of magnifying glass, go in there and, and try to figure out really what's the context of that you know are these yeah they sound like big numbers how are they uh compared to everything else and you know at the at the very least to look at headlines and not take it at face value understand that when you get especially when you see big numbers a somebody who's writing an article can manipulate that to make it sound great or horrible and you really have to think about what's the person's motive um, in whatever they're writing. And so if they're not just trying to come from a very educational kind of, let me help you understand this, then there it could be a situation where either they don't understand the whole picture or they're hoping you don't. And so maybe you act out in a more extreme way than what reality really holds. So it, it it's really not to say that government debt isn't a problem. I just think there's other factors that you need to look at. And it's not just the government debt number itself. It's not just the federal deficit number itself. You have to look at trade. You have to look at currencies. You have to look at the demand for bonds. You have to look at how are the currencies tr- pegged to each other, like we talked about last week. Um, but also, what are the what's the stability behind that? You also have the fact that while, yes, um, we're in a fiat currency situation now across the globe, you have the dollar, the euro, the yen, and it seems like central banks across the world are just printing to infinity. Um, And and, you you see a lot of that now with with the coronavirus. And it's, it's really, it's causing a lot of fear and it's really making me upset because there's this assumption that because the central banks are doing a lot now that they'll continue to do it irresponsibly or recklessly moving on into the future. And we just don't know if that's the case yet. And so I think if if you feel inclined and, and you really feel like you can get a good grasp of the economics, then I invite you like, yes, dig deeper into it, look and see what the real picture is. But I think what we see is like we see with stock analysts in the market, right? 
they'll take a year of data or two years of data and they'll extrapolate that into 10 years down into the future. So we have aggressive Fed programs lately. We have aggressive treasury spending lately, but you know, that's in response to unprecedented events that we've ever seen, you know, complete dry ups of certain economies and certain demand for certain goods and services. And so to, just because we see so much activity right now, that does not mean that it's going to continue forever. Even, even if they say we're going to do whatever we can, yeah, they're going to do what they can to invoke confidence. But at the same time, it's like, maybe give, I, I, maybe we, we give some people some benefit of the doubt. And so before we start criticizing, we understand what the numbers are because yeah, if if they did, you know, 600 billion today or a, a trillion and a half tomorrow, whatever it is. And then so now you're going to extrapolate that and say, "Oh, they're going to buy any corporate bond, any junk bond, you know, they're going to do all these irresponsible things. They'll prop up the economy, do whatever it takes." But, you know, until they do that, I think it's not fair to to say that the sky is falling. Um just based on what those actions are, particularly if you don't understand the circumstances. So I, it really makes me upset when, when you see people who say we're going to have fleeing of the US dollar, for example, or every currency is going to be worthless or the whole world's going to collapse as we know it uh, without any conversation about deflation, without any conversation uh, about the currencies themselves and, and how they're interacting with each other, or even, um, you know, what about the fact that the U S has the most reported gold reserves out of any country? A lot of these factors aren't talked about. And so people just talk about printing debt, printing the money they're, they're going into debt. And so we're going to have catastrophe. And I, that's just really not the reality of it. And we've really just barely, barely kind of scrape the surface with this but maybe because a lot of us haven't had this type of education in high school for example uh we don't we're easily um kind of steered towards one narrative or the other and so i think it's just important to either figure out what the real situation is for yourself if it's really bothering you or Understand that a lot of the fear mongering is just fear mongering, and it's probably going to get worse than it is going to get better. Um, particularly if this recession drags on and does not become the V-shaped recovery that everybody's hoping for with this whole COVID situation. So, I think at the end of the day, at least have a basic grasp of the concepts. Hopefully, we've given you that within these. <laughs> quite uh, challenging uh, topics. Hopefully we've distilled it down to where somebody who doesn't have a PhD in the subject can get a good grasp on it. And then from there, hopefully that navigates your behaviors and the habits you establish and the mindset you bring into this. And so what the principles that have always been there will always remain true. If you believe that business will find a way to to make it through if you believe you know like Warren Buffett said very recently in his annual meeting if you 
do you know do not bet against america we've we've come so far and been able to overcome so many obstacles and so if you believe in business if you believe that people will still transact and provide value to each other and people will still go out and buy things and spend you know to to spend for sustenance and spend for pleasure then it's very prudent at this time to still continue to invest in companies to stay invested for the very long term to diversify and to try to put money into the market consistently through a method called dollar cost averaging which we talk about a lot because you don't know what the timing is going to be and so there's just going to be a lot of fears and it's really going to test a lot of investor resolve and a lot of the investor metal. Just keep in mind that you know if, if you don't understand the whole picture, at least understand the basics and don't overreact to anything. And just remember that the concepts of money aren't new. Uh, the concepts of trade aren't new. You know, the Romans were trading with with India back millennia ago. And, you know, the the concepts of finance, currency, central government, government debt, all these things aren't like brand new things. You know, <laughs> they've been going on for a very, very, very long time. And so the principles that have worked for investors for a very, very, very long time should work for a very, very long time too. And so that's really what I have to say about it. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion for this evening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation on the economy this evening. Uh, that is going to wrap up our economy series. So we did a one, two, and a three. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and be safe out there. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.